Well, why don't we go ahead and get started? This is Second Corinthians, and people will be coming in because uh, it's always hard to know where the class is going to be at. We normally have kind of met in classroom one, but we, I think we've got a few more than maybe that'll hold. We'll see if, if we can get all in classroom one. We'll, we'll go back down there, but looks like uh, all those. Uh, uh, free gifts I gave out to get people to come down and hang off. <laughs> don't tell, don't tell Pastor Ken about the free gifts and, and that kind of stuff. Okay. So. so we begin looking at Second Corinthians today. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this time together today, and pray you'll bless our time as we look in this particular book that we might find grace for our own souls and our own lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So this is 2 Corinthians. I've entitled it The Glories and Responsibilities of Christian Service. And today we're focusing on what we might call the strange path of comfort. Uh, God promises to comfort us, and it doesn't uh, work out exactly like we might think on first look. And you should have a sheet there. In front of you, a couple of pages, four pages front and back. And so we want to begin looking at the introduction to 2 Corinthians today. Everybody got the notes? Everybody okay with that? Okay. We'll look at some introductory matters, and then we'll look at the first 11 verses uh, of the book. First of all, we want to look at uh, authorship. Of course, this book is written by the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul wrote 13 books of the New Testament. Um, and this is number five. If we're talking about the actual chronological order of he wrote, he wrote them. In the New Testament, of course, they're listed mainly by length. Romans is first, that's the longest. Then 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and so forth. But as far as chronology is concerned, he wrote Galatians first, then 1 and 2 Thessalonians. Galatians on his first missionary journey. First and Second Thessalonians on his second visionary journey, and First Corinthians and Second Corinthians on his third missionary journey. Uh, let's talk about the city of Corinth and get just a little background into the city. Um, I've just kind of circled some cities here, like Jerusalem, and then Antioch, and Corinth over here, Philippi, so we could sort of get our bearings. As we look at the maps, we're familiar with those cities from reading the New Testament and so forth. Uh, as I say here, this southern end of, uh, of Greece is almost an island. Uh, there's a narrow piece of land, this little distance here, that separates the mainland from uh, the Peloponnesus here, from this, little, from this peninsula. And Corinth is right there where this uh, isthmus uh, comes into the mainland, as I say. Uh, so you can see it's right there. There is a, uh, it gives you kind of a better view of Corinth and the surrounding suburbs. So Corinth was the major city, and uh, there's smaller suburbs like Sincrea and Lechium, and Ismia, and so forth. And uh, so you can get a kind of picture here of where it is in relation to everything else. 
Um, so here we're looking from the uh, major mountain of Corinth called Acro Corinth. Corinth is at the base of a 1,500 foot mountain. And we're standing on top of this mountain and we're looking back uh, toward the east. So we're standing right here and we're looking back here towards these two bodies of water. We're looking back towards the Aegean here and we're looking toward the Gulf of Corinth over here. And so we see the port of Sincrea, the port of Lechium. So Corinth had two ports. The ancient city is down here at the foot of this mountain. There's a kind of a chart of the ancient city itself. Uh, here's the Acro-Corinth mountain here, the temple of Aphrodite. Here's the city down here. There's a, a road that goes to Lechium. There's a road that goes to Sincrea out here to the ports. So here we're looking. We're in ancient Corinth. This is what's left of ancient Corinth. Um, and we're looking back at the prominent Acro-Corinth, the mountain of Corinth, that was the, the place where the temple of Aphrodite was on the top of that mountain. Here we're looking from the mountain, looking back to uh, the Lechium over here in the Gulf. And here's the ancient Corinthian excavations down here. So, you know, this is all modern stuff around it. But that's the ancient city there. And uh, there you can see the ancient city, what's left of it. This is a Roman road right here that goes up to Lechem. This is a temple of Apollo, what's left of it here. This is what it looked like, probably looked like in Paul's day. So there are various temples, about 26 temples are places of worship, uh, and so forth. This is approximately what it would have looked like in Paul's day. Uh, I mentioned be here history. Um, so Greece as a uh, civilization thrived for you know over a thousand years, but uh, in the ancient civilization. But um, Greece, you know, dominated the ancient world particularly beginning around 330 B.C. with Alexander the Great. He conquered all the known world. But then the Romans came in. The Romans came in in the 2nd century B.C. and they, in 146, conquered Greece. And they took over all of Greece, all the land of Greece. And uh, some of the Greek cities resisted. Corinth resisted the Romans when they came in. And so the, the Romans utterly destroyed Corinth. They just totally took it right to the ground. Well, then a hundred years later, in 46 BC, Julius Caesar, uh, the dictator, came and he rebuilt the city a hundred years later. He built it as a Roman colony, like a little city of Rome. And when Rome conquered something, they own it. So <laughs> the land that, the land that you, if, you, if you lived there, if you had land there, you didn't, it wasn't your land anymore, it's Roman land. So they give this land and the city to Roman uh, immigrants, basically retired Roman soldiers who retire from the service, and they populate. So the city is rebuilt again. This is the, the, the Corinth that Paul would know. It's built by Romans, but Greeks are still living around there. Jews are around there and so forth. Um, it's uh, 
it's a place of commerce here because of uh, the way ships sailed in that day. Uh, in that day and age, people didn't like to sail out into the Mediterranean. If you wanted to sail to Rome, you just didn't, and especially if you wanted to go from Alexandria to Rome, that was a common shipping route. Because Rome got, uh, Rome got most of their grain from Egypt. It was a very prized province for Rome. They got most of their grain. It was shipped there. But you didn't want to head out into the Mediterranean because weather comes from west to east. And the ancient, in the ancient world, you didn't know what weather was coming. You didn't know if a storm was coming. You had no way to know. So they liked to sail close to the shore. So they would sail up here on this side of Cyprus or around, go along the coast. They would sail over to Corinth. And sometimes they would unload their cargo and put it on another ship and sail up here, try to avoid the open sea as much as possible. So Corinth was a, quite a center of commerce for trade between Asia and Italy, with these ports of Lechium and Sincrea. I say about the inhabitants, it was cosmopolitan, mostly Roman, ex-Roman uh, soldiers who made up the initial population, but there were all kinds of nationalities, a large population of Jews. It's hard to know how, many, how large these cities were. Probably several hundred thousand. This would have been the largest uh, city, Greek city in ancient Rome. So in, in the Roman Empire, this would have been the largest probably Greek city in the Roman Empire would be Corinth. So quite a large city for its day. I'd say here, as far as uh, uh, culture is concerned, uh, the city was uh, uh, had was known for various arts, for its pottery, for its brass. Supposedly there were brass doors on the temple in Jerusalem from Corinth, made from Corinthian brass. So you find Corinthian brass throughout the, uh, the, Rome, the Roman Empire, throughout the ancient world. But they were uh, famous for uh, these Isthmian games. So they had the Olympic Games in Greece. Olympus is about over here. That was every four years. <clears throat> but every two years they had the Isthmian Games. And uh, they, uh, they would have those every two years, so people would come. They didn't have any holiday inns. They didn't have any facilities. They stayed in tents. Uh, Paul, it's very possible Paul was making tents for the Isthmian Games. We know the Isthmian Games were celebrated there in A.D. 51 when Paul was there. I remember he was there with Aquila and Priscilla, and they made, he was a leather worker, a tent maker, and people stayed in tents. That's when, that's how they, when they came. And uh, so these games were very popular outside the Olympic Games. Um, I mean, Michael Phelps is nothing <laughs> when it comes to winning medals. One time Nero came to these games, and he won every gold medal. <laughs> and he, and he, he won some he didn't even participate in. <laughs> because they said, well, the emperor, if he would have participated, he would have won. So they gave him every gold medal when he came. I don't know how many that was, but it was much better than, than Michael Phelps. So, morals and religion. Corinth had a very bad reputation in the ancient world, one of the most wicked cities. We talked about the Temple of Aphrodite. There was cultic prostitution. Prostitution was common in the ancient world. There's all kinds of evidence for that. And so it was a very immoral city that Paul brings the gospel to.
Let's talk about Paul bringing the gospel to the city of Corinth. Roman numeral three, Paul's contacts with the church. So we're going to take a quick survey of the book of Acts here and kind of see Paul's uh, contacts with the church and his establishment of the church. This is Paul in his second missionary journey. Remember, his first missionary journey is Acts 13 and 14. And in that journey, he basically goes to Cyprus and Galatia and he comes back. So he starts out in Acts 15 on his second missionary journey. Uh, and he comes uh, through Cilicia and then he goes back to Derby and Lystra. Now this is Galatia here. You can see the lines here. This is where he's taken the gospel on his first missionary journey. And he's already written now at this time the book of Galatians. He's already written to that church in 49. And he's passing back through there, through this particular area, traveled through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. And then Paul decides he wants to go over to this province. You can see the blue line here. This is the province of Asia here, the Roman province of Asia, and the capital is Ephesus. So uh, Paul decides he would like to go over there, remember, but Acts 16 says he was kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. And then he decides, well, okay, if I can't go there, I'm going to go north. He's going to go to Bithynia. No. God says, no, you can't, you can't go up to Bithynia. So he decides he will pass through Mysia and go over to Troas. Acts chapter 16. There he gets the Macedonian call, remember. The man of Macedonia, he sees in a vision and says, come over and help us. And so Paul goes first to Thamothrace, spends the night there, takes a boat over there. He has with him, remember at this time, he has Luke with him, he has Titus with him, he has, uh, maybe he has Timothy with him, Luke with him, he has, uh, uh, and he, he's with him. So uh, they, they cross they cross over to Thamothrace, Silas, Paul, Timothy, uh, and Luke. This is where we get the we section of Acts, so Luke is there. So we got these four men, Luke and, uh, and uh, Timothy, Silas, and Paul. They go to the, they go, the next day they go to the port of Philippi, and then Acts 16 they go on to Philippi. Remember what happens in Philippi, they get thrown in jail and all that happens there. They go to Thessalonica, Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, they they get kicked out of uh, Thessalonica. Remember, they go to Berea. They get kicked out of Berea. They go down to Athens, Acts 17. Paul there on Mars Hill and all that, remember. And then Acts 18, they go to Corinth, Acts chapter 18. And that's where Paul establishes the church. Remember, he goes there. He has to find a job. And he finds two people who are in the same trade as he is, Aquila and Priscilla. And they're also tent makers. And so they're apparently Christians because the text doesn't say anything about them, Paul evangelizing them. They have been kicked out of Rome. The Emperor Claudius has kicked all the Jews out of Rome in AD 49. So they've come to Corinth to plow their trade. They meet up with Paul and become his co-workers there. Um... Well, I say he comes in the fall of AD 50, and he spends about 18 months there 
uh, in Corinth. Now, we know pretty much exactly when he came. Uh, I said A.D. 50. Because if you remember the story in Acts 18, Paul is there for a while. And then, uh, because the, the Jews were upset uh, with Paul and his ministry, they bring him before the local governor, a man by the name of Gallio in Acts 18. And uh, we know exactly when Gallio was in Corinth. Gallio became proconsul of Corinth in AD, July of 8051. So we know him very well. He's well known in the ancient world. We know all about Gallio. We know his father was, know who his brother was. And we know he came in July of AD 51. And we know Paul came before that. So this is the most secure date we know in Paul's chronology right here. He had to come to Corinth about AD 50, and he spent about 18 months there. Well, then Paul leaves uh, Corinth after 18 months. He goes over to Ephesus with Aquila and Priscilla. And they want Paul to stay. And Paul says, no, i got to get back to Jerusalem. He leaves Aquila and Priscilla there. And he travels back to the port of Caesarea. He goes down to Jerusalem. And then he heads back to his home church of Antioch. Um, I mentioned there in uh, B. Um, then C, Paul departs on his third missionary journey. He goes back the same way. He goes back through Galatia and Phrygia. And he comes this time straight to Ephesus where he had just left Aquila and Priscilla a few months before. He's back there now. Um, as I say, he departs, passing through Galatia, on to Ephesus, and according to Acts 20.31, he's there for three years. Now, this is where it gets a little complex, unfortunately. We said that, I said that Paul wrote 13 letters. Um, 13 letters that are preserved in the New Testament. But it seems obvious that Paul wrote more than 13 letters in his lifetime. Some people write 13 emails in one day. <laughs> so it's, it's, you know, since Paul couldn't text and he couldn't email, he probably wrote more than 13 letters in his entire lifetime. But God has only chose to preserve those 13 in the New Testament. And biblical scholars who study these issues and study the Corinthian epistles, suggests to us that Paul wrote two other letters to the church at Corinth that are not in the New Testament. He wrote a letter before 1 Corinthians and wrote a letter in between 1 and 2 Corinthians. And we're going to have to see that, especially that, that letter between 1 and 2 Corinthians when we get into 2 Corinthians because Paul's going to be talking about that letter and what's going on. So we're trying to figure out Paul's chronology here. And I say here uh, on page on D, 30, uh, D here, a previous letter now lost was written by Paul dealing with the church's responsibility toward its sinning brethren. So uh, there is a letter that Paul wrote before he wrote 1 Corinthians. Now he writes 1 Corinthians from Ephesus. Remember Paul has come to Ephesus on his third missionary journey. He's there for three years in Ephesus. But I'm saying, we're saying here, that Paul wrote a letter actually before. Because in 1 Corinthians 5, 9, he says, I wrote you in my letter, that is in my previous letter, not to associate with sexually immoral people. 
So Paul had apparently written a letter before 1 Corinthians, and some of the subject matter is explained, I would say here in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13, he talks about this previous letter and what some of the things he said. Now he's writing to clarify some of that. I say E here, after he wrote that first letter, word came to Paul at Ephesus from the house of Chloe. He mentions that in 1 Corinthians. So the next letter he's going to write is 1 Corinthians here. So he gets word from Chloe, probably from Apollos, perhaps from other visitors, Stephanus, Fortunatus. And then in F, Paul writes the canonical 1 Corinthians from Ephesus in A.D. 54. So Paul, he wrote a previous letter. Then he wrote 1 Corinthians in A.D. 54. He sends Timothy to Macedonia, then to Corinth to assist in their problems but he wasn't sure whether Timothy would arrive before or after the church. G, Paul's correction in 1 Corinthians did not have the desired effect and the relationship between him and the church apparently deteriorated. A painful visit was undertaken by Paul from Ephesus. So apparently Paul made a visit from Ephesus to Corinth that's not in the book of Acts. So this visit I'm talking about is not mentioned in the book of Acts, but it seems to be required by what we read in 2 Corinthians. I say there, the visit is not mentioned, but it's required by the data. Now what is that? Well, when we get to 2 Corinthians, when Paul writes that letter, he'll talk about his coming to Corinth as his third visit. Now, we talked about Acts chapter 18. Paul founded the church. That was his first visit. He starts his third missionary journey. He goes to Ephesus. He's only been there to to Corinth one time. He writes 2 Corinthians from Corinth, but he says, I'm coming for the third time. Wait a minute. (laughs) Acts says you've only been there one time. That was Acts 18. And Paul says, I'm coming for the third time. So it's pretty clear he made a visit over to Ephesus that we call the painful visit because it didn't go very well. I say it's painful because some persons in the church attack Paul, they challenge his authority. Then H, Paul returns back to Ephesus and he writes what's called a severe letter. So there's that third letter. He mentions that in 2 Corinthians. He hasn't written 2 Corinthians yet, but 2 Corinthians refers to this severe letter. For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears. I called you sorrow by my letter. So Paul writes 1 Corinthians. He makes that visit over there, that painful visit. He comes back. Things aren't good. I mean, we know things aren't good just from reading 1 Corinthians, right? And he comes back and he apparently writes another letter that's often called the severe letter, as I say here. Um, which Titus carried. Um, uh, I said under I here, being impatient for Titus' return, Paul let Ephesus, left Ephesus for Troas. So he sent Titus with that severe letter, uh, trying to trying to figure out what they're going to do, wondering how they're going to receive receive him after he has criticized them in this letter. Apparently, uh, he's waiting for Titus to come back. He gets impatient in Ephesus. 
he goes to Troas. He doesn't find he doesn't find uh, Titus there. Uh, so he goes on to Macedonia. I say here in uh, um, number I here. Um, and then in J, it was there. It was then from uh, that Paul wrote Second Corinthians from Macedonia, possibly from Philippi. So Paul has been in Ephesus for three years. He sent this severe letter uh, to the Corinthians. He's waiting for Titus to come back with a response. He goes to Troas. He doesn't hear anything. He doesn't find Titus. He goes on to Macedonia. It doesn't say where he was in Macedonia, but he says he went to Macedonia. Maybe that's Philippi. And from there, he writes 2 Corinthians. As I say here, um, about AD 56. He writes the Second Corinthians from Macedonia and he travels from Macedonia down to Corinth and he stays there three months. Now that's the second visit in the book of Acts but remember Paul says it's his third visit because he made that visit, that brief visit across there, that's that painful visit that we talked about. So we're looking at Second Corinthians. There's been a lot of history <laughs> Between Paul and the Corinthian church, there's been, this is the fourth letter ultimately that we have to deal with here, and then we'll see as we go through 2 Corinthians. <coughs> All right. <clears throat> Let's uh, come into the analysis of the letter a little bit here this morning. Uh, we're going to look at verses 1 through 11, and we could call this first section a greeting and thanksgiving. And we could call verses 1 and 2 the greeting. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God in Corinth, together with all his holy people throughout Achaia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we'll see, especially in 2 Corinthians, but we saw it in first, but Paul's authority to command the church to teach the church is being questioned by some people in Corinth, particularly one particular person he talks about in 2 Corinthians. So it's important here at the beginning for Paul to stress his authority as an apostle. And so he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And if you think back at Paul's epistles, uh, sometimes he calls himself an apostle, sometimes he doesn't. And often when he does call himself an apostle, like in Galatians, uh, but he doesn't do it in Philippians, you know. Often when he calls himself an apostle, he has a purpose. He's stressing his authority for a particular reason. When he's writing to the Romans, he does, because he has never visited Rome, but he wants to say, I'm an apostle. And as an apostle, he had authority. Um... Paul says, remember in Galatians 2.8, For God who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. Two times in Romans, he calls himself the apostle to the Gentiles. Remember in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Christ appeared to me as a confirmation that I am an apostle. And an apostle is an important person. I'm sure you know the word apostle is apostolos. 
And you've heard people say it means someone who sent, a sent one. And it is. Apostolos is a sent one, a representative. But this is a very important word because uh, it's used 80 times in the New Testament. Christ called his disciples apostles. He gave them authority. But strangely enough, you know, before the New Testament, there's a thousand years of Greek literature. And the word apostle only occurs two times talking about people. In a thousand years, two times. So this is a word that the New Testament, that Christ picks up to designate his representatives. The background of it seems to come from a Jewish background, a Jewish word, a Hebrew word called shaliach. And in Jewish literature, in rabbinic literature, they had a person called a shaliach. And they translate that word into Greek as apostolos, apostle. And that seems to be the background. And this shaliach had tremendous authority. Uh, we think about a person who has a power of attorney. This is ten times more power than power of attorney. A person who is a... You could designate a person your your shaliac, and they could uh, contract a marriage. Your marriage or your child's marriage. They could... They could... They could could represent you as getting a divorce, whatever that kind of thing, whatever, whatever was involved in that. They could buy land. They could do anything. They were just like you. Uh, they had a saying, the one whom a man sends is like the man himself. And the, and the one whom a man sends is a shiliac a or an apostle. So the point I'm making here is that um, Paul is not writing as a private individual. He's not writing as a gifted teacher. He is writing as a representative of Christ on the earth. He has absolute authority to command. He has authority like no one has. So, you know, nobody's an apostle. Now, if the Pope, the Pope calls himself an apostle, and if he really was, he could do what he said he did. <laughs> you know, he says he can make doctrine and all. Well, if he was really an apostle, he could do it. Because apostles had that kind of authority. And so Paul is writing, stressing to these people, hey, I'm an apostle, you got to listen to me. What I say here, this is what goes. He refers also to Timothy here, and this is, we know, Paul often includes a person that's with him that the Corinthians would know. They know Timothy, so he includes him in the greeting here. And I say here, linked with the Corinthians are all God's holy people in the province of Asia. So Paul writes this in a little broader sense. That would be people in the province of Asia. Uh, So uh, he's writing uh, a a province of Achaia. I'm sorry, here. Uh, to, To the province of Achaia. So here's the province of Achaia. Here's the blue line. So that's Athens and Crete. So he's writing even broader uh, to a broader, he's in, mainly Corinth, but he's including other Christians who live in that area. And I say here in verse 2, we have the characteristic Pauline greeting grace and peace to you, and I won't say much about that for time. Let's look at the Thanksgiving, verses 3 through 11. And in three, one, uh, and excuse me, chapter 1, 3 through 7, we have Thanksgiving for God's comfort and suffering. Paul says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. As I say here, in Paul's letter, he usually follows his greeting with a thanksgiving for God's grace that's evident in the lives of his converts and a summary of his prayer requests for them. 
So if you look at most of Paul's epistles, he'll start off by, I'm thanking God for you. So he has a thanksgiving for the readers, and then he has what's called a prayer report. He says, and here's what I'm praying for you. I'm praying this, and I'm praying this, and I'm praying this. Not here. <laughs> Not here. Uh, I say, notice here, Paul offers praise to God for consoling and encouraging him. So his thanksgiving is not for the Corinthians here. He says, my thanksgiving is to God because God gave me comfort. He doesn't mention the Corinthians here. And later on, he says about the prayer, I want you to pray for me. So it's sort of all about Paul here all of a sudden. (laughs) And we wonder why that's so. Many people think it's because of the distressing situation that Paul found himself in the province of Asia. Remember we said Paul is in the province of Asia here for three years. He goes to Troas before he goes up to Macedonia before he writes 2 Corinthians. And he says some very disturbing things. You know, later in verse 8 he says, we, don't, we do not want to, you to be uninformed brothers and sisters about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure, endure so we despaired of life itself, Paul says. We despaired of our own lives. We, you know, we just can't think of the great apostle despairing of his own life, but here he is, despairing of his own life. So maybe this is to be explained by the fact that Paul had such a disturbing, distressing experience in Asia, and he came to value various aspects of God's character that brought him through this distressing situation. And he mentions a couple of those in verse 3 and 4. He mentions God's compassion, who comforts us, the the father of compassion, he mentions. And uh, he also mentions uh, his limitless compassion and his never-failing comfort. So he says, as I was going through this distressing situation, and I thought I was going to die, I was comforted by the compassion of God and God's comfort to me. Um, I say here next here, Paul views his suffering as having personal benefit in that they drive him to trust God alone. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentences of death, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So Paul said, this suffering and difficulty that I faced in the province of Asia, I thought I was going to die. This has benefit because it causes me not to rely upon myself, but upon God. Um, Remember he mentions later on in 12.7, he says, because of these surpassing great revelations, therefore in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. So my point here, I think what Paul is saying here, is that he went through these very difficult circumstances and he experienced God's compassion and God's comfort. And that was very beneficial because it caused him not to rely upon himself. And you know what that's like if you've had some difficult times in your life. We try to figure it out, we do this, do this, and we just finally are sort of in distress. We have to just say, God, help me. I'm at the end of my rope here. What what can I do? I I need your... And so that's good for us. It's good that we have those kind of situations in our life because we don't rely upon ourselves so much. We learn to trust God and depend upon Him. 
Um, I mentioned Paul using the first person plural here. You can read that. But I say here that notice that, that uh, uh, I also say Paul's suffering also benefited those he ministered to. Because he says, uh, back in our text, verse 4, who comforts us in all our troubles so we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. So Paul says, I went through this difficult situation and I experienced God's comfort. And one of the reasons God let me go through this was so I could comfort other people. I could be of help to other people. There's a lot of reasons we suffer, isn't there? If you look at the Bible, there's a lot of, there's a lot of reasons. Sometimes there is chastening. Sometimes God is disciplining us. And he's doing things to bring us, uh, bring about our sanctification. Sometimes we suffer and we just don't know why it's happening. We don't, God doesn't explain. Now we're looking at the book of Job. And Job's going through this suffering. And I don't want to spoil the ending for you. (laughs) I'm going to spoil it for you. Job never finds out why he's suffering. That's right. He never finds out. God never tells him why he had to go through all this. Isn't that amazing? He never finds out. And that's going to happen to us. You're going to go through some difficult circumstances. And we sometimes we can figure out things. Things happen. We're able to help other people communicate. But Paul says here, one of the reasons we suffer is so that we can comfort other people. And that's so true, isn't it? There's a thing called empathy. You can empathize with people... If you've gone through something, you can empathize when they go through it, you know. If you're a 70-year-old with cancer, some 20-year-old person can't really empathize with you. I mean, they can say we're praying for you and all that, but when you're 20, everything works right. (laughs) But when you're 70, they tell me. They tell me. If things, if things don't work right, you know, things don't work right. Take my word for it, they don't. They don't work right. So, so uh, one of the reasons God allows us to have these difficulties and these suffering is so we can encourage others. And remember, this comfort just doesn't come to us out of the blue. Remember, God uses means. In our sanctifying process, God uses means, and he uses three main means. To bring God's grace to us. He uses the word of God, prayer, and the fellowship of God's people. So, when we're suffering, when we're having difficulty, God's going to give us comfort through the word, as we hear from the word, as others preach the word, tell the word to us, as they, other people pray for us, as, as we pray, and the fellowship of God's people, the encouragement of other people. Other people who can say, yeah, I know what you're going through. I've gone through that. I'm going to pray for you. And you can make it through. That's a great encouragement. So that's how this comfort will come to us. And Paul says, it's difficult to understand why we experience some of these sufferings we do. Paul didn't understand why he experienced all of his. But he said, I do know it has a purpose. And one purpose is so we can be of help and encouragement and the sanctification of the lives of other people. We better stop here. It's 12 o'clock. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together. Give us grace to accept what comes into our lives and to look for you, look to you for the grace and comfort that we need. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.